Hi there, come up on the porch. We're just sitting here watching it rain and talking about Louisiana. I'm Bruce McGee. And I'm Steve Payne. And this is the Louisiana Anthology Podcast, episode 503, for January 20th, 2023. Welcome back. Well, another year. Happy New Year, Stephen. Yes, and I love the sound of that 500, don't you? <laughs> I know, yeah. That was a great Happy New Year kind of a thing. The next big one, I guess, will be 600 in two years. Yeah. It takes a while to build them up. So today we're talking about T.R. Johnson, uh, part one of our interview with him, about 19th century New Orleans writers. I think he did uh, New Orleans Literary History is the name of his book. He teaches at Tulane and very valuable public, um, you know, uh, valuable scholar studying Louisiana literature. Um, and I think we talk about it in the, uh, the podcast. These guys get overlooked. I've never heard of either one of them when uh, I entered uh, grad school. And uh, when I finished grad school, I had still <laughs> never heard of either one of them. Um, and that's partly on me, but it's also like partly on our education that uh, you can go so far in Louisiana education without ever running into a Louisiana author, right? It, yeah, I mean, our schools have been kind of remiss, I think, in their in their duty of, about, you know, educating our young people and our adults about Louisiana writers. Um, and and also Louisiana filmmakers, since we brought on a you know a handful of filmmakers on the show. I mean, we don't do that. It's like you keep saying, the, it's the food, the architecture, the music, maybe right. the art. And that's kind of where the thing stops. And um, and yet there, we have produced some great literature that oh, we yeah. need to be, you know, we definitely need to be educating our people about that. This is their literary heritage. If those guys had lived in Mississippi, everybody in Mississippi would know their name, right? Uh, they're, they're as prolific as uh, Hemingway, not Hemingway, the other guy, Faulkner. <laughs> Faulkner, yeah. 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 Uh, all right, so uh, we'll be looking forward to part one of our conversation with TR in a few minutes. But first, this week in Louisiana history. So this week in Louisiana history, on January 6, 1820, uh, Reconstruction-era Governor Robert Charles Wycliffe was born in Bardstown, Kentucky. And I looked him up on uh, Wikipedia. He's an interesting character because he grew up in Louisiana. Huh. Uh, you know, and he is part of that you know, some, uh, you know, a few more commonly up here in this part of the state, up here in North Louisiana, but, you know, a certain percentage of Louisianans either were from Kentucky or their parents were from Kentucky and moved no. down here in the early days of statehood. Who is our old uh, professor from back in the day that he was one of our early conversations? Uh, Cook? Was it? Yeah, 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 yeah. He told us that, that uh, North he had studied uh, migration patterns and people in South Louisiana tend to arrive in boats, you know, uh, from somewhere. Uh, whereas up here, people, you know, we're a long way from the sea, so people tend to come across. And so Georgia, you know, you come straight across, you're here, you plant your peaches, you find they grow. And, uh, but up and down the East Coast, there were people that would strike off to the West. You know, I'm getting a 
I'm getting a kind of a discrepancy here. They list him as a Reconstruction governor. Uh, this guy's born in 1819, according to Wikipedia, and our, we're saying 1820. But yeah. also, they're saying he was governor 1856 to 1860. So he's really pre—he's the governor right before the Civil War. If that's yeah. if that's correct. So right. we probably ought to change that on the show notes. Yeah, I'm trying to find out who this guy is. Is he before or after the Civil yeah, War? Yeah, he, he is before the Civil War because it said he – in fact, he's interesting. It says he did not actively support secession and during the Civil War tried to act as an intermediary between the Confederacy and the Union. Remember, Louisiana is an oddity among the Deep South states because there was a, a vocal you know, a vocal fight against secession before it actually went down to – you know, that Louisiana would secede. Did he serve after as well? Uh, that's what I'm trying to say. He was elected to the as a delegate to the Democratic National Convention, supporting Tilden in 1876. And of course, it winds up being Hayes, you know, given the the, the presidency then in the so-called corrupt bargain or whatever it was called. Right. But then in 1884, he's a delegate supporting Grover Cleveland. So his time as governor is before the Civil War. That's what I'm looking up. Uh, I don't know who I'm looking up. National Governors Association says he was 1856 to 66. Yeah, yeah, that's what the Wikipedia article says. Yeah, 1856 to 1860. Um, Pre-Civil War. Yeah, yeah, the run-up to the Civil War again. In fact, I mean, he's, you know, because in the next year, of course, Louisiana's going to secede, I guess, in 1861 or 1860 or 61. Well, thank you, Stephen. You saved us from an embarrassing (laughs) faux pas. Always pays to look these things up, you know. Yeah, double check. Eighteen fifty-six to eighteen sixty. Yeah, so um, that was not the year the war started, but um, it was the year that Lincoln got elected. Kind of put the things into motion. All right. So now for this week in New Orleans history, Comus, New Orleans' first Mardi Gras crew, was so successful with its parade and ball that a group of enthusiastic carnival struck. New Orleanians decided it was time to increase the enjoyment by forming a second crew, the Twelfth Night Revelers. Uh, Twelve days after Christmas, they went forth, and uh, January 6th, the official starting day of the carnival season, and starting, well, we're recording on the 5th, starting tomorrow on the 6th, Stephen, it is once again legal to eat king cake. Oh boy! <laughs> so yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Uh, actually, and our, I, and our friend Matt Haynes had a had a post on Facebook tonight about his about his book. You know, oh good. So I know. You know, I'm jealous. Very much. Yeah, yeah exactly. He's That's running around, I, boy. You know, getting into the spirit of King Cake and Mardi Gras. I've been doing the research. Why didn't I think of the book? You know, it's a, <laughs> it could have been a payoff for my fifty extra pounds. So uh, let's see. Just as Comus adds new wrinkles to Mardi Gras festivities, the new crew had a few innovations of its own to add. Uh, January 6, 1870, the Twelfth Night Revelers opened carnival season with a nine-float parade that was equal in splendor and pageantry to the previous Comus parade. So it's starting to spread, of course. By now, uh, you've got all kinds of stuff out there, including the uh, crew of Chewbacca's, which is... um, the uh, one celebrating Star Wars and other science fiction. So whatever kind of parade you're interested in, if they don't have it, for goodness sake, go out and start it. Now for this week in Louisiana, 
So this week in Louisiana, we highlight the 2023 Fan Expo in New Orleans uh, starting uh, January 6th, running through the 8th. This is at the Ernest N. Morial Convention Center at 900 Convention Center Boulevard in New Orleans. Uh, the neighborhood is a neighborhood arts warehouse convention district. Event host is Fan Expo uh, headquarters. Admission price is 27 and up. Kids five and under get in for free. And plus there are photo ops and opportunities for autographs. Now, what is this exactly? Is it like a comic convention or what? Do you know? It's a fan expo, and it's, you know, it sounds like a Comic-Con to me. Let me look up, um, I've got access to their website. Hold on. Um, sounds like. You know, there is a small, there is a small uh, comic book convention, I think in Lafayette or Lake Charles. It's one, you know, down south. Three days of fun-filled fan culture, ultimate playground for comics, sci-fi, horror, anime, gaming. Three big days, capital letters, all caps of citywide events, family friendly attractions, world renowned celebrities uh, await. It looks like a Comic Con to me. Oh, geez, it's going to have some fairly important people. Sam Rainey, the director, he's going to be there this, this year. Yeah. Carlo and Zito, the actor, is going to be there too. So there are going to be some people that are fairly, you know, pretty well known that will be some of the guests. Anton Mount, who is the star of Hell on Wheels, so apparently he's doing something new. A lot of these folks I don't know, but, oh, uh, voice actors as well. Yeah, this has to be, oh, yes, you get lanyards. Oh, you get a tote bag. Oh, you know, we should uh, be looking oh. at this to get ideas for our own um, own um, shop down the road. I think tote bag. Yeah, I mean, you, you know, Deb, Debbie, that we, you know, we start offering you know, tote bags as well as apparel and that kind of thing in our store. Mm-hmm. Totally. And tote bags, you can put a nice big picture on, and they're kind of cool. All right. So now, uh, so get thee to the um, 2023 Fan Expo, uh, January 6th through 8th. So uh, today's, uh, tomorrow, Friday is when we'll drop this. So uh, hurry on down. You don't have much time left. Um, meanwhile, from this week's postcard from Louisiana, uh, just in time for the Martin Luther King uh, um, period of time, we listened to the Carl LeBlanc Trio lead a uh, bunch of people who were there to celebrate um, Homer uh, Plessy, not the racist, uh, the uh, racist uh, court ruling, but the man himself who stood up for right. Uh, when a uh, few people did, and uh, we sing, we're singing uh, "Lift Every Voice and Sing," which is kind of the Black National Anthem, right? Yeah. And was this? Did, did Governor Edwards pardon him too, or do something yes, to overturn? We have downloaded the videotape of that, along with a, um, a transcription. And someday, someday, we're going to have it on our website. I don't know when. Uh, but it would be nice because he spoke, um, uh, Keith uh, Plessy spoke, Phoebe Ferguson spoke, there were some other people, but real nice event, uh, and uh, you know, uh, not good to see something good happening in a place like Louisiana. Absolutely, absolutely. All right, so now we will go and listen to Lift Every Voice and Sing. 
I'm Bruce McGee, and I'm Steve Payne, and uh, we're here today with T.R. Johnson. Welcome, T.R. Well, thank you very much. I'm glad to be here. Thanks, you guys, for your interest in the stuff I've been doing. I'm so happy to have you, and um, uh, I found you. I was trying to do some research on uh, Katie O'Hearn, and mm-hmm. I went to 64 parishes, and you've written, which is uh, kind of the official yeah. and, uh, encyclopedia um, right. And uh, you had written an article on him and, I believe, George Washington Cable. That's right, yeah. Uh-huh. And, you know, if you look in, uh, like, uh, the databases on articles written uh, about literature, uh, mm-hmm. you see that, the night, you know, these are guys that have kind of been overlooked. Um, mm-hmm. And so I really appreciate you, uh, you know, uh, dusting them up. One thing... One thing you do as a, a scholar is uh, you try to find something that has enough written on it that mm-hmm. you can be, you know, in a dialogue with it, but not too much written on it. So these guys, um, you know, there's stuff out there, but it's mostly 20 years old and older. Um, yeah, that's true. That's true. And also you've written some books. So why don't you tell our folks about them and where they can buy them? Well, certainly happy to, uh, and, and again, thank you guys for having me. I've written uh, a number of things, but with a particular interest in New Orleans, um, about, oh, it's been three years ago now, uh, right, it was about three, it was October of 2019, that Cambridge University Press released my edited collection called New Orleans of Literary History, and that's about 25 different essays by different scholars, uh, all about different moments that are kind of crucial moments in the world's understanding of New Orleans, or the world's imagining of New Orleans, what New Orleans means. That came out, as I say, about three years ago, about six months before the pandemic started. And um, I've been so happy with it. It's, a, it's going to be released in a paperback form this coming summer. And it's really been uh, gratifying to me to see that become a 
useful resource for anybody that wants to start really digging into the incredible literary legacy of New Orleans. What's, to my surprise, Cambridge was so excited about that book that they said, we would like you to write another one, and this time, let's not make it a collection of essays. Let's make it all coming straight from you, and let's make it not a sort of Scott pitch that is purely scholarly dimension, academic dimension, but let's, let's go for a general readership and put this out as a mass market paperback. So at first I thought, oh, my gosh, I don't know that I can do that. But then I said, you know, I think I will. And summer of 2020, I sort of dug in and started working on it. And it's finished. And Cambridge is just putting the finishing touches on the production. They've got some maps they want to uh, put the finishing touches on. It should be out in March of 2020. Excuse me, March of 2023. So a couple of months from now. And what that, that really brings in kind of what Bruce and I are doing. I mean, you are the perfect guest for us mm-hmm. in the sense that you're trying to make this kind of information and these ideas accessible to the general, you know, the general reader or in our case, the general listener. Yeah. Because we can be so theoretical a lot of times in the academy. And yet, you know, and yet we are trying to do scholarship that we hope at least has some sort of impact on you know, uh, the public, you know, the listening public, the viewing public, et cetera, the reading mm-hmm. public. Absolutely. And that's, that's part of what I've been so excited about, to kind of um, really try to build a bridge out, uh, you know, beyond the university into just the book lovers. And, and I think I, I, you know, I went sort of far enough with that first one in this direction that now I've tried to really go all the way and write something that anybody who loves good writing and loves good literature and is curious about New Orleans will find, in this new one in particular, uh, a perfect kind of uh, guideline, if you will, to kind of reading your way through the city. And I've had a lot of fun with it. So So what's the title of the new book and uh, what is it uh, about, you know, yeah, what's the main topic? You're sure, sure. So the, the book is called, the new one is called New Orleans, A Writer's City. And what I did was I decided that there are basically five major streets in the city, five major thoroughfares that kind of focus the different parts of the city. And so I devoted a chapter to each of those five streets. And then I do a sixth chapter that's kind of on the outskirts, on the on the suburbs, which, interestingly enough, is where a lot of the most exciting literary productivity is, is happening right now. So the five streets are Royal Street, which allows me to basically do the French Quarter. The, right. second, chapter, the second chapter is St. Claude Avenue, which takes me through um, kind of the downtown sort of working class corridors down below the Industrial Canal even. Third chapter is Esplanade, which ends up including the Marigny, Bayou St. John, even parts of Mid-City. Right. Millionaire Grub. Uh, what's that? Millionaire's Row, that's what they used to call uh, Esplanade, I believe. Oh, yeah, yeah, that first, those first several blocks of Esplanade are pretty dazzling. After the, the fourth chapter is Basin Street, and that's become, that basically is Congo Square, Storyville, and the Treme. Fifth chapter is St. Charles, which is Garden District, University District, Irish Channel, and Central City. And then that final chapter, as I say, is kind of what we call New Orleans East, Chantilly, and the West Bank, and... Um, and that's basically the book. It's, it's those chapters organized around those streets. And it was just fascinating to me to see the way, as I began to sort of organize my understanding of the literature in those terms, the way certain kinds of sort of thematic, um, it, 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 there's sort of a thematic sort of focus 
if you will, oddly enough, to the writing that has sprung up around those places. Um, you know, the theme of a lot of the writing on Royal Street, for example, that came from Royal Street or is about the quarter and the, and the areas around Royal Street, a lot of that stuff hinges sort of on the theme of masquerade, on kind of double identity, kind of uh, the, the, the two-faced, kind of Janus-based figure, uh, the right hand not knowing what the left hand is up to. And um, that, believe it or not, is a kind of hook upon which I can hang basically 300 years of writing, although I mostly <laughs> focus on 1850s to the present. Um, well, you've got uh, George Washington Cable, Possum Jones, uh, starts on uh, Royal Street, literally. And that gives us the address. <laughs> yeah, exactly right, exactly right. And it's really helpful to me when those writers give addresses so I can really answer them right there in the book, exactly. Um, yeah, o. Hen- you know, O. Henry followed Cable as a kind of um, – you know, a guy who is knocking around the quarter and becoming inspired yeah. by the social complexity of it. And he kind of sprang up, oh, late 1890s, uh, you know, just a, a, you know, a decade or so after uh, Cable left town. Um, and well, I think he learned makes, a lot from Cable. What makes so Henry so great um, is uh, that's his pen name, but it's also um, like right. he was on the lamb. Uh, you got that right. That's exactly <laughs> right. He was, he was <laughs> yeah. totally uh, yeah, he adopted that pen name to avoid arrest. He eventually right. arrested him, went to jail. And it was after that, I guess it was in jail, he had a very, um, I think it was really scarring to him to be in jail. And he only lived another 10 years, but in that 10 years, he became probably the most celebrated short story writer America's ever had, you know? Oh, yeah, and a lot of them are set in New Orleans. You know, That's like right. The, the only p- bit of uh, Louisiana literature I was assigned Mm-hmm. In all of my education, from kindergarten on through grad school, mm-hmm. was oh, I think it was Chopin, the story of an hour. But, okay. Oh, but also, um, yeah, there too, because oh, Henry's gift of the Magi, but it's set in, I believe, New York, and he That's has right. this whistling Dick <clears throat> Christmas stocking, which to my right. mind is a much better story. <laughs> yeah, yeah, always fascinating stuff, and. You're right. I mean, and it's, you know, he is sort of a master of irony of this kind of, uh, this sort of two-sided coin, as it were, and it is thus archetypal to the literature of the French Quarter, in which so much of this literature is about this, as I say, this kind of double-sidedness. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. So I'll talk about some of, um, well, I would like to talk about Lafcadio Hearn, since that was what brought me to you. And uh, this guy had quite the career. Why don't you? Um... Yeah. Oh, it's amazing. It is really one of, I think it's one of the great stories of 19th century literature in the United States. And, and of course, I, I guess I should kind of, you know, the United States is sort of not the whole story because most famously, his real ultimate legacy, it seems to me, is when he left the U.S. to go to Japan and yeah. spent, you know, spent kind of the final, oh, 20 years, I think, of his life in Japan. And, and most significantly, was really one of the first writers from this hemisphere to start to culturally explore and open up um, that world. Uh, he ended up marrying a Japanese woman and, and I believe underwent various kinds of initiations into an order of samurai and became just steeped in Japanese culture. And I, I'm certainly not the first person to observe this, but it seems that he really learned how to do that work of explaining one culture to another here in New Orleans, where right. he's at explaining kind of the old Creole world 
to a readership of the wider United States in those decades after the Civil War. Yeah. Um, I mean, we have on our website his uh, uh, cookbook, uh, a very early Creole cookbook. Mm-hmm. Um, and, yeah, it's just great. Yeah, it's fascinating. He had his, you know, he did, in addition to the cookbook, he, you know, published um, a whole bunch of old Creole aphorisms and saying and kind of, you know, folk wisdom and poetry, in addition to the journalism, which is uh, really stunning. I think he's one of the great prose stylists of his era. And, and in terms of the history of New Orleans, his real significance, it seems to me, is he conjured kind of what New Orleans would mean for the wider United States in the aftermath of the Civil War when the U.S. was really kind of reimagining what it was. And, and it, the understanding of New Orleans that he kind of rolled out over those eight or ten years he was here kind of defined what New Orleans even today it, it still is in the tourist industry. You know, it's about ghosts and cemeteries and live oaks and dueling and quill cuisine. The whole kind of set of things that the tourist industry today hinges on really begins um, in the writing of Lafcadio O'Hearn as the, you know, the basic bullet points of exotic New Orleans. I was just about to too. say that. It's America, I call it American exoticism. Exactly. Uh, but also, so they, also kind of a gothic. Because there's a, that's a, right. Um, and that, that is really interesting to me because I like this neo-pulp fiction using some actual characters from the mm-hmm. 30s. And those things, in fact, we brought a guest on about Bruce, was it four or five years ago? But it was uh, Steve Rowan, I think, up in uh, mm-hmm. St. Louis. Right. He's written a book about uh, urban mysteries and how that is the mm-hmm. tradition that gave birth to the dime novel, basically, but also, you know, a few generations later to, to Pulp Fiction. And of they course. rely heavily on Gothic, you know, Gothic. Uh, sure. Sure. You know, like it makes the, perfect you know, sense. Like the, yeah. Like the uncanny and the weird. Yeah. And the fantastic yeah. and all that. Oh, so, so true. Is really steeped in it. Oh, absolutely. You know, there's a Lafcadio Hearn line that is it's so morbid it kind of tickles me. He says he's describing the, the cityscape of New Orleans and it's kind of the perpetual decay that's so exotic and alluring. He says, uh, New Orleans is like a dead face that wants a kiss. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. So there's the gothic for you. And, I mean, you know, I can sort of see what he's saying. I definitely can see what he's saying. But it, it, def, it hinges on that uh, gothic kind of dark and shadowy, you know, sort of this adventurous, and it, this is not uh, the standard American environment, you know. Oh, right. There, there, like, um, I was taking pictures in Jackson Square one day. It was a rainy day. Mm-hmm. I got this great picture of a woman walking by, and uh, you, if you look closely, the glove that she's wearing is a skeleton glove, you know, like it's got... Uh-huh. Skeleton printed on it, and this wasn't Mardi Gras. It was just a day, you know. Sure, sure, sure. People dressed up to go out. She just had to be the hand of death that day, and you know, I was. Who's going to disagree with her, right? You know. So we've got some four things by Hearn on our website so far. Uh, One is San Malo, which was uh, Uh, yeah uh, the um, the the village of. Mm-hmm. Filipinos, and I wonder if that's where he got his uh, interest in the Orient. You know, I wonder. I think I think there's, I, I'm sure that it did. You know, there was apparently when he first arrived here, one of the first things he wrote about was some type. There was some kind of uh, ex- museum exhibition or some kind of expo of Japanese culture, and he covered it as a journalist. 
And that, too, must have been, I mean, it's certainly foreshadowing. It's, it's triggered an interest or something. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, those, and as you say, it's one of the first, and maybe the first account we have of that Asian community uh, out there east of the city. And um, it, it, that, too, clearly, uh, he writes, he's so inspired in, and sort of taking up the subject of this mystery of how, who are these people and how did they get here. But you can kind of tell that this is a subject that is going to loom large in his mind really the rest of his life, and in fact obviously did once he moved to Japan. Right. And um, he was a newspaper man before he, or while he was writing these longer works, um, right. like Cheetah, which is a, mm-hmm. it's a, it's a novel set on uh the Dernier, um last island, and exactly. uh, it got yeah. wiped out by a hurricane in real life. So he exactly. writes that up, but he has one baby survive, you know, mm-hmm. like, a boat, like like Moses or Romulus and Remus, mm-hmm. or Superman, which is kind yeah. of fell from the from the Moses story. Yeah, right. So yeah, that becomes uh, you know the hook for the book. I um, yeah. Yeah, and you know, I have to say, I lo- I really love uh, that 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 sort of nonfiction novel, if you will, about Last Island. I just think that the prose, I think it is the most beautiful landscape writing of South Louisiana that I've ever read. He just evokes the kind of endless bayous and marshes and swamps that this steamboat sort of threads its way out to get to those barrier islands. It goes out through that stuff and. I just think his evocation of the South Louisiana landscape is so gorgeous and so moving. I just, I to me, that's the real value of that uh, of that work. I, in addition to it being prophetic in some ways of the entire region, ultimately going to bite, and uh, it's going to have that meaning eventually too. But I just, I just get uh, just kind of lost in the gorgeous reverie of his sort of steamboating out through the swamping bayous to get to that barrier island. I just love it. Yeah, it's great stuff. And uh, it's nice to see it in the hands of somebody who appreciates it because so many travelogues that get to Louisiana. Oh, I was so depressed looking at the swamp. It was gloomy. and I the beauty, right? Yeah, yeah, definitely. It's, it's just... It's, Gorgeous stuff. I, you know, it's so, more of the what ifs of history. What if he had not left here uh, for Japan? What if he'd stuck around and continued to pick up this scene? Could have been really interesting. One of those what ifs. I guess he was only here about eight years, but boy, what a what a body of work um, right. he turned out. The the cookbook, the proverbs, the mountains of journalism, the, oh, the yeah. longer work on Last Island, um, and the proverbs are a collection of you know, proverbs, but they're in Creole, but he also includes, thank you, <laughs> an English translation. Right. Uh, it's the only thing I know that does that exact thing. We had, oh, who was the Tulane professor who wrote the, um, who collected all the uh, Creole folk tales? Um, oh, yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. No, Forshay. Yeah, yeah, okay. that, but he uh-huh. didn't collect. Uh, Proverbs, and so he, and obviously he didn't know Creole when he got here. So uh, probably, you know, teaming up with people like Porsche to say, okay, what is this? And what's mm-hmm. the translation? But it's a great 
source. Um, oh, I agree. I agree. And it, you know, to me, its particular power is that it it really kind of points to how rich that Creole culture was before Americanization kind of gobbled it up and and just right. kind of you know turned it into a cute tourist trope. I mean, obviously, it's still here in certain ways, and if you can if you know how to look for it, you can kind of find traces of it, but. But that world that Lafcadio was uh, sort of touching on in that question of Proverbs, it just speaks volumes about what a profound um, and well-developed literary culture had developed uh, sort of through the Caribbean and, and here um, in that, you know, call it sort of mid-1700s up until, you know, the, toward the end of the 19th century when, when Hearn was catching the last glimpses of it. Uh, as Americanization kind of went into overdrive, but um, right. it, it's so it's one of those artifacts that points to a cultural and social universe of incredible magnitude and depth and riches that is, you know, a little bit like Atlantis. It's I guess you know in certain ways yeah, it's a lost world. It's a lost world. It's a lost but, world. And the world that's in these, like a lot of the the proverbs, have to do with uh, animals that. They would not have ever experienced in the United States. So these are ideas that go back from Africa that somehow got mm-hmm. preserved and handed down sure. for yeah. decades and decades. Yeah, yeah, it's fascinating. I mean, it's, it's a lost world, and it's, uh, what it, how how great that Lacario could kind of save a, a sliver of it, and and there's other glimpses of it too, burrowing into the archives. But it is. You know, in mainstream American literary culture, how often do people kind of turn to that that lost world? You know, um, so it's that's that's a very profound thing that Lafcadio kind of captured and preserved for us uh, as a way to for Yankee U.S. folks to kind of peer peer into a, a gone world. And it provides us with an opportunity to um, work some, like if we were doing period. Uh, Fiction, we could throw in some of those yes, proverbs. Right. One of them wound up as the title of the book, uh, Buki Fe Gumbo, which uh-huh. is uh, Hyena Makes Gumbo, but uh-huh. rabbits at this same place. Right. Um, right. But yeah, you know, you don't have that book, you don't have that That's right. title. This stuff is still, like, people are still using this book. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's really interesting. Yeah. Fascinating thing to think about. I just, I, you know, I, one of the things that kind of humbled me is I was working on my new one. I really sort of set myself the task of trying to dig into that world as much as I could. And the more I dug, the more I found. So I had to kind of yeah. pull back and say, okay, let me sort of hold on here. I'm going to get. I'll never finish this book if I. You know, I'm just getting swallowed up by it. There is a um, a brilliant. It just came out in just in the last few years. A um, gorgeous edition of the Afro-Creole poetry that was appearing in the Civil War era newspapers in the French Quarter, and that were um, politically very radical. You know, um, it was uh, all about a kind of aiming to achieve a kind of post-racial world that the the New Orleans Creoles were just well positioned to try to imagine and and to advance. And and these these newspapers were. Speaking to represent uh, that world and publishing poetry that was celebrating the Creole struggle for equal rights and and basically the the black struggle for equal rights. This in the 1860s, you know, a century before um, the civil rights movement really gained momentum here. 
Was this in the Tribune? Exactly. Uh, L'Union, the Union, and the Tribune. La Tribune and L'Union. That's our friend Mark Rudman, isn't it, Bruce? Yeah, his ancestor founded those papers. That's right. Bringing out mm-hmm. publishing books, but mm-hmm. also a lot of times on his Facebook, he'll just put in a day's um, editorial, you know. Wow. And it'll be just exactly what we're going through now. <laughs> I've, t- I've said to my students before taking the the intro to lit classes, when you do the genre class, you do poetry, mm-hmm. bomb and fiction. And mm-hmm. I've said to them, because we do some poems in there and, and a few other uh, prose selections too by some of the giants from the Harlem mm-hmm. Renaissance mm-hmm. that I tell them. And I introduce it uh, by particularly as a, as a Louisiana thing, saying there would be no Harlem Renaissance without yeah. The, the, the literary artists of New Orleans. That's they're right. The, they're the trailblazers. That's right. It's so true. Yeah, absolutely and that's right. Kind of concerned that we've been in such a dormant <laughs> period uh, because this is such a. I mean, if you're in any kind of intersectionality, mm-hmm. New Orleans in the 19th, 18th century, the, the um, 19th century, excuse me, but 18th too. I mean, this is where it kind of started in our country. That's right. Yeah. That's right. That's right. Yeah, it's, it's so it's such an extraordinary history. I've said to my students too that I teach a class called Literary New Orleans, and you know, at a certain point, my understanding had reached to to this point where I said to my students, you know, we could really fill the entire semester with the literature of New Orleans without doing anything in English if I had the skills <laughs> and, and so on. But we could do, you know, all, there's enough um, extraordinary stuff in the 19th century that we could fill a semester and not cross into kind of the American phase right. of the first quarter and, and, uh, and all that, you know. You've got Sejour, the Monroe, right. the first right. uh, story by an African-American, uh, like a uh, fictional story, short story. Right. Got all the listeners. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, it's a, it's a lot of stuff, and really important. And all those Afro-Creole poets that uh, Clint Bruce collected. So yeah, I mean, you could really, you could, you would not run out of stuff anytime soon. Um, and I, I think, and a lot of people don't realize that that there, there was a basically a francophone literary universe roaring in the French Quarter up until about the last gasp of it seems to me to be around World War One. Right. Um, and interestingly, you know, one thing that I just kind of finished, although that the literary dimension of it kind of died off around that time, interestingly enough, it was right around that same time that the next major wave of black cultural expression began to explode here, jazz, uh, right. which the Creoles had an important hand in. So the literary stuff sort of tapers off right around the same time that the musical universe explodes and, you know, sort of sets the beat for the 20th century. Mm-hmm. Right. Kind of different. The Harlem Renaissance, all the arts were flourishing at once, but that's right. that they were kind of sequential here. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, if you're interested in this literature, um, the Tintamar at Centenary. Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, uh, they're bringing these um, French language uh, publications back into print, and sometimes they'll even translate it. You know, there'll be mm-hmm. a translation book. So uh, great right. they've done that. If you do that class, that's where you'll be getting your books. <laughs> <laughs> exactly right. Exactly right. I've only, you know, I just came to learn about that stuff in these in these recent years working on this stuff, and what a treasury uh, that is. And, yeah, anybody that considers the 19th century, especially Louisiana, the 19th century, that's going to be the place where, 
that stuff is preserved. So uh, it, is, it, is, it, is a, it is a rich subject. We're trying to bring some French back into the state. And what better way to do it than with stories about the state? Because people yeah. are more interested in it. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So um, two more things about Hearn. Mm-hmm. Uh, one <laughs> really fun um, a picture of him in a kimono or some Japanese uh, uh, costume. And also, he's always uh, sitting, looking to the right because he had a bad mm-hmm. eye or something. That's right. Yeah. I, mean, I don't know what happened to that eye, but he, uh, yeah, he had uh, one of his eyes was um, uh, kind of disfigured, and and uh, so he, I think it, <laughs> he would t- he would turn to the side for any kind of photograph. I suppose uh, yeah. he was an odd fellow. You know, he's very like Cable, very small and. Uh, and and socially, he did not really connect with the Creoles here. They saw him. They saw Hearn as kind of an outsider, and in fact, mm-hmm. were very angry with with George Archie Cable and kind of ran him out of here after his grounded <laughs> team. But Hearn, you know, Hearn, they just saw him as kind of a oh, you know, an interloper, a, a transplant who was sort of popping in, sort of a, a tourist with kind of an extended stay in mind, and. Um, I, 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 I'm definitely very much an outside observer to their world. And, and Cable, although he was kind of a native and kind of knew the place, they tussled him right out of here after Grand Decenas because he, they felt that it was not a very flattering representation of them. So. Oh, right. And, um, yeah, um, you know, to be from New Orleans, it's not enough just to have been born there. You know, your parents right. Parents have to be from there. Uh, None three right. of us will ever be authentic in New Orleans, you know. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Well, that gives us enough to uh, kind of the distance we need to really uh, perceive it in in more maybe more rigorous and detailed ways than people who have been kind of swimming in it from day one. I, that's what I tell myself anyway. Um, a lot of the books about New Orleans and the strange custom have been written by outsiders because mm-hmm. they go and say, "Oh, look at this. This is that's great. right." Yeah, it's yeah. Not. We do it all the time. Yeah, but nobody else anywhere does this. So I'm gonna yeah. read. Didn't he have an interesting, kind of a unique background himself? Uh, and I'm thinking about Lacadia Hearn. Was he was he a Greek or? That's was, right. Was well, his parents Greek? His mother was a peasant on a Greek island. Um, wow. And his father was a was an Irishman working, I believe, in the British Navy. He was born on the island of, and I'll not, I'll butcher the pronunciation, Lefkos, and hence they named him Lefkadio. And he was taken to Ireland to be raised for a little while. By his early to mid-teens, he was in Cincinnati. And then at 27, he came here to stay for eight years. By 35, he was on his way to Japan, where he spent the rest of his life. So he was very much a kind of a global citizen in a way. And there's a recent novel by uh, a Vietnamese-American novelist named Monique Trone called, um, oh, Bitter Fruit, something um, on the tip of my tongue. Anyway, it, it sort of tells, it, it, it's a novel that focuses on the three major women in Lafcadio O'Hearn's life, his mother in, in the Aegean first, and then the black woman whom, with whom he was partnered up in Cincinnati, and then the woman he ended up marrying in Japan. And so it kind of traces Lafcadio from, from the women who were closest to him. Um, and uh, fascinating stuff. Yeah. The, I'm, I'm looking at a, at a Greek, a Greek-American newspaper website called The Greek mm-hmm. Reporter. Mm-hmm. And uh, because I was thinking this as you were saying it, and it, the oldest Greek Orthodox church in the United States was founded in New Orleans. 
right, yeah, right after the Civil War. I'll be done. I'm wondering whether he was at all connected with the Greek community in New Orleans. If he's I wonder. You know, made those connections. I mean, it might be a future article or book for you, you know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. It's interesting you mentioned that, Steve, that, yeah, because um, the people, the real, to me, some of the most impressive writing about Hearn suggests that he was kind of, um, you know, he became estranged from his mother as a little boy, never saw her again, and that he was in New Orleans kind of searching for that Mediterranean world yeah. that conjured the, ver- the, the world that he associated with his mother. And, you know, in the, in the late 19th century when he was here, the French Quarter was becoming kind of a, excuse me, a big Sicilian enclave. Essentially, it was mm-hmm. a Mediterranean right, right. city. And so uh, he may have been uh, kind of closer to his mom than we realize today in moving around what was essentially the Mediterranean period mm-hmm. of New Orleans. Well, I was going to say that whole story of his birth sounds like a Sophia Loren movie, you know. Mm-hmm. The mm-hmm. Irishman lands on the island and there's this beautiful yeah. woman from there uh, stomping on grapes. They're always stomping on grapes. <laughs> that's right, that's right. <laughs> And here's Las right. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it sounds like his life would make an awesome biography yeah. or even a movie. It's very it really would. It Maybe really a would. I don't think you could handle all three locations in one movie. It would just be too much, you know, like. Yeah, yeah. It, yeah, it would have to be a miniseries, you know, like a Netflix yeah. or something. That would be fascinating. What an odyssey, you know, from. It is, it is really one of the really curious lives of the literary history of New Orleans. I mean, just from, from Greece to Dublin to Cincinnati to New Orleans to Tokyo, that is quite an arc. I mean, how many people in the 19th century kind of had that kind of a global trajectory? It seems very unusual to me for 1850s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, you know? Well, and especially when you're carrying, uh, comparing to... Uh New Orleans, where many, many New Orleanians never leave town. <laughs> of course. No desire to leave town. It's not yeah. 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 We're going to go. It's New Orleans. <laughs> That's right. We're not, no matter where we go, the food's not going to be as good, and nor will the music, know. you know. So uh, with all always, due respect to other places. But. I always ask our expats when we're uh, interviewing, so what do you eat there in uh, Des Moines? Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Oh, I, I shudder to think. Yeah, I, yeah. If, especially if they grew up or if they're accustomed to this cuisine, not a lot of crawfish in Des Moines, I suspect. <laughs> not, <certainly> not. <laughs> I wouldn't. I, I wouldn't eat a crawfish in Des Moines if you paid me. And that would, you know, it's not to pick on Des Moines, but uh, yeah, it's not. It's, that stuff doesn't travel well. <laughs> so uh, let's move on over to uh, George Washington Cable because we've done. I think we did an episode about, about we definitely did an episode about um, Ponce and Jean. And I think we also did one on the grandest things, but we never really talked about him. And mm-hmm. so um, the thing about Cable, you have to understand, he's writing a lot about Creole culture, but from the perspective of a wasp, you know, Anglo-Saxon <laughs> Protestant who really about his subject matter. Uh, mm-hmm. Why don't you tell us a little bit about him, where he was from, and the yeah. he was writing. Yeah, yeah. He's just a fascinating figure, too. And, you know, I, I, something I often start in talking to my students about, about Cable, something I often like to point out is that in the 1880s, he was 
a very, very, very famous writer. He used to travel the country with Mark Twain yeah. doing kind of, uh, mm-hmm. book events with Twain. And, you know, we, we know, you know, everybody knows this, you know, the stature of, of Twain. Um, he was on a forget cable and, and they, cable was, was just, you know, second only to Twain in that period, which is ironic because uh, unless you're kind of a scholar of that kind of regionalist literature of that period, he's, you know, he's kind of not widely read the way Twain will forever be read as long as it's American literature that people are reading. I had never heard about him until mm-hmm. we started this project. Literally mm-hmm. never heard the name. And yeah. of course, everybody knows the name Mark Twain, even if they don't yeah. believe yeah, yeah. It's fascinating that he, um, that, you know, the way kind of, how should we say, you know, tastes and reputations come and go, and he was a superstar of the 1880s and is known only to specialists now, really, you know, uh, which, is, which is a curiosity. And his life, too, had a kind of um, mixed fortune, I guess you could say, in that, as I was alluding to earlier, uh, the established Creole elites of the city were really offended by the Grandissimes, and in particular, the kind of preeminent Creole historian of, of early New Orleans, Charles Gaillaret, just roasted him in article after article in print and in public lectures. And he finally just said, you know, I, I don't, I'll go live in Connecticut. He ended up, he went lived near his good friend Mark Twain and, and continued to have a, a, an important career. But it, um, it's, it's kind of intense how powerful that, that Creole elite was here that they could drive such a serious fellow out. Well, interestingly, what got the grandest scenes in trouble is its mm-hmm. frank acknowledgement that the yeah. white fields and the black fields are actually cousins and half brothers. Right. Uh, there's right. this whole system of uh, passage. That's right. Uh, where you have a black family and a white family, and uh, you know, <laughs> they even have the same name. That's <laughs> right. That's right. That's which right. which yeah. works in part because New Orleans was. Not only an African city, but it's a Latin city. You know, it's That's not. Right. A, it's not a. Yeah, you know, this wouldn't have worked in colonial. Mm-hmm. You know, we'll say Virginia. Yeah, yeah, you know, exactly. Right. Boston or someplace right. in New York. It just. I mean, exactly it's not. Right. It didn't happen, but it just would That's not right. have worked. And particularly That's on scale, right. that it worked. And also, not even just in New Orleans, but really across a good hunk of the I ten corridor in South Louisiana, because you have mm-hmm. very similar. Mm-hmm. ethnic mixes in Lafayette. Uh, where I grew up in Baton Rouge, you have some of that there in Baton Rouge. You have it around mm-hmm. that area, you know, mm-hmm. that whole area, over into the so-called Cajun Triangle. Yeah, so, yeah. It's, it's fascinating, yeah. To this day, Louisiana is the state that has the most uh, interracial uh, people. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, wow. yeah. Because we have so much of a mixed, you know, and I mean, it's not that it didn't happen everywhere else, but it was a public kind of thing. That's right. That's right. And, you know, it's my colleague uh, in the history department at Tulane, Larry Powell, brilliant guy, and he observed something. It's very simple but very profound, and it, it sort of stuck with me. He said, um, "What was you? What differentiated New Orleans from, say, the Chesapeake, the Upper Eastern Seaboard, was that when a white man had." children with someone with whom he had enslaved, he lost no social status. It was not considered um, something to be ashamed of or to hide or to deny in any way. And so, as you observe, it's a, there was a kind of public acknowledgement of these mixed-race children that was less likely to happen in other parts of the United States. And that they then became... Off. Kind of, they weren't sold off as slaves. They were... Treated as sons and daughters, and many of them 
you know, they had a nice house, and the boys went to uh, France to finish their education. So they sure did that and never came back. But That's right. They came back. <laughs> and there was inheritances, too. You know, some of the, mm-hmm. the elites, they, when the old guy would die, um, they're suddenly you know, massive wealth is starting to transfer into certain kinds of, dem- you know, certain kinds of, uh, how should we say, complexions that it would have been, that was less likely to happen, say, in the Carolinas, uh, right. you know, or Baltimore and Philly. Exactly. Uh, yeah. so you get very wealthy people who do not look like the wealthy people of Boston, let's put it yeah. that way. Mm-hmm. Well, originally in his Tribune and Union, uh, they were, he was from that Creole elite. You know, the, right. the, the, the poetry they write is, you know, good French. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're, they're writing good French. It may not be great poems all the time, mm-hmm. but uh, mm-hmm. the French is really well educated and they know sure. poetry. Sure. Uh, so, yeah. Well, and you're <laughs> even seeing, we had a, <clears throat> a poem that we published on the website, and this thing is, we think, probably Louisiana's first African American poet that wrote the thing. Bruce, you know the one I'm talking about? It's a, a protest poem written in the wake of the Battle of New Orleans, and you saw uh. it already. You know, this is 1815, roughly, mm-hmm. and the writer, the poet, is already not just expressing what is probably his own personal sentiments, but he's showing that that community is developing its own very unique sense of identity. Right. This is 200, you know, 207 years ago, literally. That's amazing. Yeah, That's yeah amazing. it's fantastic. I mean, you look at that in your eyes, just go wide like, you know, like a pie pan and your mouth just pops open like, I can't believe what I'm reading, you know? Yeah. It's so interesting. Yeah, this idea of a, a unique and powerful cultural identity is already in place in 1815. You yeah. know, that's, that, is, that is early. Um, it's fascinating to see how, I guess I would say, too, how quickly, you know, the city is basically founded in 1718, and the French kind of kind of abandoned it through the 1730s and 40s. The Spanish sort of took over eventually and ran it for a couple of three decades. But just in that handful, let's call it a little more than a half century, just a little more than a half century was enough time for a group of people here to begin to form a identity that was very distinct, very powerful, very proud, mm-hmm. and very serious about itself in ways that were able to kind of hold off full Americanization in some ways, yep. even down to the present day. They say that the, uh, you know, the uh, influx from Haiti doubled the French-speaking population of the city, and that kept it French-speaking for another generation. And like you say, yes. who hasn't eaten red beans and rice? <laughs> mm-hmm. That's right. We have our Creole culture still to this day. Well, it also, I mean, it, <clears throat> it's predictive of what happens in America later on. I mean, I've read <laughs> two events that happened both, you know, swirling unfortunately around war, but two events that that one that is contemporaneous with the revolution, one is the Battle of New Orleans, but the other is the the Battle of Baton Rouge, where I grew up. Mm-hmm. And both of those at that time, at their times, were the largest multicultural sure. on American soil. Now this is before yeah. you know the Civil War, mm-hmm. and, and and I keep saying this like a broken record, <laughs> to use an old saying, but mm-hmm. I keep saying this, that, that Louisiana needs to be billing itself through mm-hmm. the lieutenant governor's office saying mm-hmm. that this is the place where American multiculturalism was born. Right yeah. here in the, in the area that we call Louisiana, from the 33rd parallel down to the Gulf Coast. Mm-hmm. That's a great point. Right That's a very powerful point. 
this is the original multicultural place. You know, when we think today, I was, you know, oh, six months ago, I was visiting a friend out in Los Angeles, and the, the L.A. basin is this incredible melting pot of ethnicities from everywhere. It's amazing to think, as colossal as that big blender is, that um, Louisiana was all that, you know, a century and more prior. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, I mean, it's really, as you say, it's where it's kind of, we were the original L.A., so to speak, you know. Well, yeah, yeah, it, it prefigures Houston, too, because Houston is getting so multicultural. Uh, the surprise of all surprises of cities that size, i.e. mid-sized cities and urban areas, Baton Rouge, my old hometown, is among the most diverse in the country. Baton Rouge is. Go figure, you know. And I, it's probably got something to do with LSU and Southern, but also being the capital. Right, and everybody comes to Baton Rouge. Yeah, so Baton, and, and being hey, close to the coast, too, like New Orleans, for that matter. Back to Cable, he has a few stories that are reminiscent of Mark Twain, like Puss and Jim, but he prefers mm-hmm. melodrama. And I wonder if that's part of the... Hold on. Is he there? Yeah, can you hear me? I can hear you. This is TR. Yeah, I'm here. Oh, okay. Got it right back. Good to hear. Um, okay, so I, I, said, I would you know, say that Cable writes some humor, like Southwestern humor, very much in the vein of uh, Mark Twain, but mostly what he writes is melodrama, and I wonder if that's part of the reason for people overlooking it in our time, because melodrama is kind of, yeah, it's melodrama. Sure, sure, sure. <laughs> How can that be serious? It's like soap stories on the TV. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah, exactly. But, you know, but to Stephen's point, too, insofar as he's writing about the kind of, you know, sort of fraught processes of a multicultural society forming, um, that would be, to me, you know, to right. have, what, what puts it back in the canon and puts it at the forefront of the curriculum. As we struggle and grapple with a vision of a national literature that is radically multicultural, yeah. somebody like Cable becomes central to... Any right. syllabus of that kind, you know? He's possibly more applicable today than he's ever been. I um, agree. Totally agree. Probably another factor is uh, his natural audience would have been New Orleans folks, and they resented what he wrote, at least the right. upper-class white Creoles, uh, because this was a time of growing Jim Crow, and sure. people are starting to check your family tree real close. So yeah, that's right. Quite right. enough uh, to have, you know, full rights. And the fact that you have a, a brown or black cousin mm-hmm. is open to uh, suspicion. Right. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. And that, that may account in part for uh, his eclipse, the way he kind of seemed to fade from uh, the center of national attention after a peak in the 1880s. You know, by, by the time he died, I think around 1920, even 25, um, he was you know, really not not widely known or widely read. Um, so his, his star set even within his lifetime. And I suspect, I think you're right, uh, that it may very well have been kind of the, you know, the, the real launch of the Jim Crow era. People started to try to draw really hard lines in a place right. where he was doing precisely the opposite. The lines are very blurred, uh, to quote mm-hmm. the song, in New Orleans. And I would say a third thing is he, as I said earlier, he's very waspy. And mm-hmm. 
is that a judgmental toward the Catholic French-speaking population? Mm-hmm. It, just, it mm-hmm. just comes through in the way he talks about them. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a, it is. It is. A, he was sort of. I guess I, I, would, I dare say he was kind of picking a fight. Uh, that is, you know, my, my colleague Matt <laughs> wrote about uh, wrote about him and said, you know, although he did not on the surface appear to be any kind of revolutionary, in fact, he really was. You know, he, mm-hmm. he fought in the Confederate Army, but was, you know, only a short while later writing, you know, strong critiques of racism and uh, <laughs> lobbying for prison reforms. And The Silent uh, is a, uh, a book about, you know, discrimination and equality, and he's more for the mm-hmm. equality, right? We mm-hmm. don't have to yeah. fight yet, but we're working on it one day. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. It's interesting, you know, my, this, my new book kind of really begins with that territory, Afro-Creole poets, the early kind of cane tuck folklore figures, the Afro-Creole yeah. poets, and then from there it goes into really the 20th century, O. Henry and Kate Chopin on into the kind of high bohemia in the French Corps of the 1920s around Faulkner and Sherwood Anderson, and then in the 50s and 60s with kind of beatnik people. I'm thinking of uh, John and Gypsy Lou Webb and their circle, Robert Stone. And um, and that's kind of the Royal Street. Uh, those are kind of the luminaries of the Royal Street yeah. period, up through uh, uh, Tom Robbins' Jitterbug Perfume and, and then Valerie Martin's masterpiece of recent times called Property that uh, I just can't praise enough. Uh, but that's kind of that arc, and it does. It you know begins with those Afro Creole poets and the Cane Tucks just before them, on up through Valerie Martin is for me the kind of the the legacy of Royal Street and the French Quarter. And Cane Tuck is the uh, Creole and French word for people from Kentucky who float that's down right. are like river trash. You know they had that's right, that's right, <laughs> that's right. Yeah, um, it's uh, it's you know they. They don't tend to get talked about a whole lot in terms of the kind of cultural development of the city. They were the first ugly Americans, as you say, yeah. river trash. Um, you know, the kind of the, the, the generation after Daniel Boone who were kind of rough backcountry woodsmen, and they were violent and drinking and, you know, and so on. But there's a lot of... What's that? They did not know how to read, you know, That's right. the culture and... They were here for hookers, and you know, if you're an attractive Creole woman of whatever caste, mm-hmm. <laughs> just come right yeah. yeah. And, well, and one one appears in our play that we recovered that uh, Liberty in Louisiana. You have one that is, um, you know, supposed to be Bruce. Is that the one that had gotten the young woman pregnant or something? I think or, he was from Ireland, but you know, they were kind of down the river, so certainly mm-hmm. the, of that of that dimension, yeah. I think his pregnant girlfriend, I'm not sure if she's Kentucky or South Carolina, but, you know, she's from... Uh, Somewhere in the Upper South, I think. Yeah. Andrew, Andrew Jackson people, as it were. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And it's, uh, there's, a, there's, a, there's a folklore that kind of orbits around those folks that, that I kind of, I, I touch on. You know, the most significant, obviously, Abraham Lincoln was one of these people, and yeah, he, mm-hmm. came, he came downriver on a raft twice. And in this, in all the sort of standard lore about Lincoln, it was these visits to New Orleans as a young man that generated him a spark in him a kind of permanent resolve to uh, end slavery, which he did. Um, the evil slavery was very much on display. You would literally display. Oh, yeah. It was a spectacle. It was the largest slave market in the country. Absolutely. Being so 
spouse was one of the worst things that could happen to you as a slave. Well, they say sold up. I mean, you're going to New Orleans. And it wasn't Mardi Gras for, mm-hmm. for slaves. Yeah, yeah, it was a, it was kind of a death sentence in a way, and and it's interesting that it was kind of a rite of passage for you know young Kentucky males in the first couple of decades of the nineteenth century was to come down here, you know, you, you know, selling whiskey and and whatnot, and then walking home, and it was sort of, sort of an initiation into adulthood, I suppose, particularly on the lines you were just describing a moment ago, and Lincoln, you know, it was that for Lincoln, but for him, it was the witnessing of the spectacle at the at the big slave exchanges that seemed to really transform him. Had a similar effect on Walt Whitman, who was kind of a mm-hmm. you know, assumed Lincoln figure, as it were, 20 years later. He, I guess uh, Lincoln came in 1828 and then Whitman in 1848. Uh, but a very parallel phenomenon. Came down here as kind of rough backcountry woodsman sorts, uh, in Whitman's case, posing as that, and coming upon a slave auction and being scarred by it in ways that shaped their... Uh, vision of what they were going to do with their lives ever after. It's so fascinating that Whitman, the the kind of language that becomes Leaves of Grass uh, yep. starts appearing in his notebooks literally right as he is leaving New Orleans. He leaves New Orleans spring of 1848, starts writing a certain new part of Whitman, and five years later we've got Leaves of Grass. Seven years later we've got Leaves of Grass. He was a reporter in New Orleans also, wasn't he? That's um, correct. That's absolutely right. And there's just been a beautiful new collection of his journalism, his New Orleans journalism that just came out. Um, on, I think it's LSU Press put it out. And uh, you can sort of see him beginning to run these catalogs of urban types. That was just the city was a more complex social terrain. You know, he grew up in Brooklyn. It was a more complex social terrain than anything he'd ever seen. You yeah. know, as her, you know, every race in the world, as well as some races that are nowhere else, are all present here. And, it just mm-hmm. lost its mind, and coupling that with the horror of of uh, human trafficking, it he sort of he kept a he tore off a wall a advertisement for a slave auction, and apparently kept it tacked up next to the desk where he did his writing for the rest of his life wow. as an emblem of what he what all of his work must push against ever after. Well, he and, was uh, radically democratic, like he believed in the equality of all men and all women and whatever there is in between. He's yeah. smart, man. And, That's you know, right. even for slaves, he sees them as his equal and mm-hmm. it's uh, trying to enslave them. That's right. That's right. It's, a, it's an amazing thing. You know, he kind of came, as, as we all know, to this sort of vision of urban democracy as the kind of mystic salvation of the American people to the degree that we can truly celebrate diversity and make votes happen for everybody we are going to be an example for all of the world and to the degree that we fail on that count we you know we fail and it's the opposite of a certain brand of americanism that's practiced today in the republican party which is uh in order to be truly american you have to be white obama of course is not american obama's the most american figure imaginable where in the world are you going to get barack obama then the united I'm curious about that with with, um, with Whitman in the sense that is he very soaked in the, the writings or even the connections with abolitionists like William Lloyd Garrison and people? He sure know. was. He sure was. And in fact, the reason he came to New Orleans is because he had been fired from a Brooklyn newspaper for those beliefs that he was just um, – 
you know, and it's kind of ironic that, you know, this virulently abolitionist voice gets uh, bounced out of his job at a Brooklyn newspaper and then takes a job in the kind of in the belly of the beast, ground yeah. zero for human trafficking, the, the New Orleans newspaper where he came to work. But, you know, uh, New Orleans had more unionists um, than pretty much anywhere else in the Confederacy. You know, there were mm-hmm. a lot of people who were against uh, breaking away. Mm-hmm. At least well, that was, the, yeah, that's the figure that I, that I have seen. <clears throat> online that supposedly Louisiana sent more troops to fight for the Union than any other state in the, in the Deep South. Maybe in the South, but it, was, it, it wasn't just black Louisianans. It was Anglo. It was Caucasian Louisianans. I, I think in total, wow. something like 14,000 African-American Louisianans, but there were like 7,500 to 8,000 white mm-hmm. Louisianans, which is a yeah. lot. Uh, but, and these were people mostly tied to New Orleans, albeit a few up here in North Louisiana, uh, you know, a handful, but there were some up here too. Oh, One wow. of them actually wrote a yeah, he wrote a doggone memoir, uh, mm-hmm. and I think he was from the Mansfield area, or maybe fought at the Battle of Mansfield. But yeah, mm-hmm. most of them are in and around the New Orleans area, and a lot of them are Irish immigrants. Interesting. And uh, um, I had a great great whatever grandfather, <laughs> Collins, is in Collins, Mississippi, and he became radically anti-slavery and went to the Free State of Jones. And after it collapsed, he went down to New Orleans to join the Union Army and probably mm-hmm. died of dysentery. So he okay. being buried in the Shawmet battlefield. So, wow. Yeah. Wow. Interesting. It's an incredible history, you know. And we start, we start to invoke figures like Lincoln and Whitman, these absolute centerpieces of 19th century America and the role that New Orleans played in their formation. Uh, you get to get a sense of how profoundly important this place is right. as a kind of cultural nexus and a literary kind of launch pad, you know, yeah. there is no orator in the 19th century that can top Lincoln, and I don't think there's any poet in American history whose career has the importance uh, quite matching Whitman's in terms of innovation and right. reach and significance. So it's, it's, it's extraordinary, and, uh, well, and, and those two are indexes of it. A little further forward, Faulkner, I believe. Yeah, of course, of course. The historic Elon's collection is housed partly in one of Faulkner's old houses that he lived mm-hmm. in in New Orleans. And um, Truman Capote grew up there. Oh, of course. Oh, cool. um, Tennessee Williams. I mean, oh, yeah. These are giants. <laughs> These are true giants. You know, there, there is no playwright in the history of the American stage that can rival Tennessee Williams. And he often said, although particularly as Hollywood got interested in stuff and he was traveling mm-hmm. a lot, there was no place where he felt more at home in the French Quarter of New Orleans. And uh, whenever he was not forced to be somewhere else, he was sort of uh, spending time in New Orleans, particularly early in his career. After a while, New York kind of got its hooks into him, obviously. But right. uh, he, kept that, he kept a place here for a long time. And, um, and Faulkner, you know, I often point out to my students, and this is, you know, make of this what you will, but it's an astonishing thing. Faulkner spent about 16 months in New Orleans. When he arrived here, he was a poet kind of writing in this sort of late Victorian mode. I'm thinking of Swinburne and these kinds of figures. That was what he was about. He, after just 16 months, he left here, and in, in the 10 years after he was gone from here, he produced a body of work that is basically all of his masterpieces and is one of the, probably the, the hottest 10-year run of any literary artist in the United States, one of the hottest 10-year runs of any literary artist, period. There's Sound of Fury, Azalea Dine, Light and August, Absalom, Absalom, all of that happens in, in less than 10, it was in a 10-year burst uh, after he leaves New Orleans. So he kind of caught fire here, went from being kind of an old, rather old-fashioned poet 
yeah. the absolute vanguard of modernist literary fiction. And and then, you know, the, on the on the strength of that 10-year burst, they give him the Nobel Prize. Right. Well, and then a streetcar name desire. There's nothing more poetic than that phrase. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's not the streetcar to the desire neighborhood. No, streetcar <laughs> name desire. It becomes instantly a metaphor. I, I was at a Christmas party this last Christmas, and um, there was a woman there who had been the head of chair of a theater department before she retired. I was telling her a little about our project and that we were trying to put a lot of theater in there. And she said, oh, you mean New Orleans has theater? And I'm like, oh, man. Christy Williams? And she's like, oh, yeah, right. <laughs> right. Right, right, right. That is funny. Yeah, and Le Petit Théâtre was a thing that sort of sprang up right in that in the, in the 20s during that the first major uh, non, you know, post-Creole Bohemia in the quarter. Uh, and that was, that was, you know, that was, I think, part of what attracted Tennessee Williams to be here. There was a roaring theater scene uh, mm-hmm. to 1925 in the French Quarter that uh, that would have been part of what attracted him to the place, you know. Um, well, and it's great. Capote was born here. Um, it's uh, it's that's all French Quarter stuff, and uh, it's, uh, <laughs> that little concentration of blocks has had that level of significance to the literary imagination in the United States, but it has. Yeah, if you're stuck out in the boondocks where there's no theater, you're not going to be writing plays. But he's right. watching this stuff and says, oh, you know, I, I could write one of these plays. They're a lot shorter than a novel. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> well, and it, it, I mean, I would think it would attract, at least in theory, it would attract a community of writers, which means that's exactly it. Getting, that's exactly you know, it. You get people that are that are connecting with each other, that are sharing ideas. That are mm-hmm. that are starting rivalries like the family between Faulkner and Hemingway and you know yep. other venues, but they 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 become a real community. Um, exactly it has its own degree of support, and you That's know right. we talked about this on the show before. Uh, Bruce and I have a friend who teaches down at LSUA. He's a probabilist or statistician. Mm-hmm. Uh, he does those areas in, in uh, related to math, and he was telling me quite a long time ago that that people taking the modeling methods that he learned in graduate school at Tulane, actually, that mm-hmm. they are learning how to uh, – we know about these connections of literary giants, like, a, like a, for example, a, you know, a Wordsworth and a Coleridge, and you mm-hmm. had the, the Keats, Byron, Shelley circle. Well, sure. They're, they're mapping those things statistically. Uh-huh. And they're showing, yeah, opening up some new, you know, uh, really some new avenues, of hopefully, of literary analysis. Uh, so who knew whom? You know what may have been the influences that we that are you know we can track some of those by studying the the styles of the writers and so forth. But this opens up some other avenues that might you know be pretty pretty revelatory. I think. You know, so I'm so that from a, from a status or you know from a probabilist of all people. I um, love it. I just love it because you know what's so interesting to me about it is that's basically what this new book of mine does is is tracks these clusters of people who become communities and these communities right. that kind of stretch over a few decades, it's really, really, once you start looking at New Orleans that way, for me what's most exciting about it ultimately, it's, it's kind of a new way to sort of think about literature and organize one's sense of literature is that there are these kinds of, um, how should we say, dynamics in these communities, these, co- these sort of coffee house and bar conversations that become, as we all know from common sense, that's how a lot of literature, literary culture works. But to really sit down and kind of map it out, you can start to see that in a place as dense as New Orleans, there are several 
kind of nexuses, I guess nexi is probably the plural, <laughs> of, of this kind of stuff. And Esplanade oh, yeah. Avenue in Seventh Ward is one. And, and there's another one in the Treme. There's obviously a huge one along Royal Street. There's a huge scene uptown around the universities, a very different scene in the hip-hop communities of Central City. There's the Irish Channel legacy. Yeah. And so there's, there's these strange kind of um, synchronicities that, that, that show up on maps in it's a better. way that you look at it on a map, it doesn't occur to you, you know? Right. It's like the Confederacy of Dunces from directly from the Irish Channel. Exactly. Uh, and back to Speak Her Name Desire, um, all of the people in the play are pretty much from somewhere else. Blanche is, you mm -hmm. know, Belle, who has read Gone with the Wind, wants to mm -hmm. um, yeah. depend yeah. on the kindness of strangers. And Stanley is this two-fisted, like, uh, uh, Polish? Is he? Polish? Yeah, he's a Polish immigrant. Yeah, Kowalski yeah. yeah. or something like that. I think. Yeah, yeah. That's right. How closely do you have to observe the local community to figure mm -hmm. out? Hey, there are a lot of Polish people. Here. Yeah. yeah. Well, and and in fact, exactly, and that there is a uh, a kind of a dissonance between these urban immigrant populations and those people who are sort of trickling out of the old plantation south. Right. Boy, are they they're speaking a different language and the fireworks yeah. that ensue as Blanche with her endless sense of entitlement um, runs up against Stanley, who's a, you know, a, an American story of a can-do immigrant. He's hitting the ground mm -hmm. running and he's going to be on his way to a, a comfortable place in the suburbs within a generation. Well, he's uh, also working class, right? And she's oh, you bet. Yeah. Very much yeah. establishment. I mean, Bruce and I have been talking about this just last night when we were recording for the episode that will drop tonight, actually late. Mm -hmm. And we were talking about the uh, Pen Warren uh, exemplifies that Robert Pen Warren mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. he is very much the Southern establishment. This is why sure. those people like him and mm -hmm. all the old Southern agrarians get get the hell freaked out when the the working class like my family, like Bruce's family, rise mm -hmm. up. Yeah, it's, it is a mortal threat to their control right. of power. And That's why, right. Why, this is for the same reason why Blanche is freaked out and eventually yep. comes unhinged. That's right. It's yeah. a symbol of all that. That's William, right. William Faulkner writes a rose for Emily about a woman who, spoiler alert, uh, kills her uh, lover and keeps him in bed with her for the next 50 years. And she's essentially mm -hmm. Blanche's sister, or yeah. aunt, but she never right. left home. But they both got this um, view of mm -hmm. the universe that has passed away, except for in the bubble of the South. And because mm -hmm. Emily stayed home, she was able to use that. Um, you know, you can't tell a woman her, her house smells. Uh, right. Of course, Blanche gets in New Orleans, which does not make accommodations for that entitlement. That's it. Yeah, certainly not downtown where she was. And um, I, th I take up streetcar in, the, in Chapter 2, the St. Claude chapter, and boy, not. Yeah, the downtown neighborhoods were immigrant neighborhoods where people were hustling, and not standing on a lot of social pretense and, and etiquette. They were here to make stuff happen. I and love the hustle. Bless her heart, gets run over pretty fast, you know. But uh, if you move to, I think, Charles Street, she might have had mm. a different outcome. That's yeah, for sure. Yeah. Moonlight and magnolias on She could have gotten, you know, found her imaginary millionaire come true and then folded herself up into that circuit and, you know, lived another 25 years happy as a clam, going yeah. to parties and parties and whatnot. Yeah, but the ladies were just like her. <laughs> That's right. That's right. But downtown, she's way out of her element, and um, it breaks her. Um, and Stanley breaks her in particular, obviously.
Okay, we're going to break in here and finish our conversation uh, next week. It was uh, really nice to me to be able to find out more about people like Katie O'Hearn and uh, uh, George Washington Cable and some other um, 19th century luminaries that, you know, I think because they're from Louisiana, uh, they may get overlooked. Um, you know, writing in New England, they never forget. Uh, um, but also, like, um, if you're going to have guys like that uh, make a splash, a continuing one, uh, it has to start in the place where they were. And so if we would do a little more like Mississippi does in their uh, literary uh, heritage, they, they push that stuff, and that's what we have to do. Um, you know, every year we have a – who wrote um, – her name Desire. Uh, oh, yeah, Tennessee Williams. Yes, thank you. Tennessee Williams. Uh, we have a Tennessee Williams Festival with a Stella Calling Contest, Stanley Calling Contest. It's just um, a very nice thing, uh, but we need a lot more of those in Louisiana, don't we? Absolutely. I think, I mean, you know, one of the ways Louisiana does celebrate this and does a very good job is that Louisiana uh, Book Festival every every fall. That is and it's, that's one of the major book festivals besides the Texas one on the Gulf, particularly on the western Gulf Coast, you know, the one over in Austin. But then we have the one, you know, down in Baton Rouge, and it's an appropriate place because both are held in the state capitals. You know, the ones in Austin, Texas, the ones in Baton Rouge, and they bring in, you know, the, the two festivals together bring in literally thousands of people. Uh, yeah. Come and, and you know here, they also do something we might consider down the road if we could get you know an opportunity to speak. I mean they they bring in not only the the book uh, the writers the authors but they also bring in special speakers. We could do one of our presentations down there. You know right, either yeah. one, the general one for this project or one of our more specialized ones that we've given in Natchitoches. Right, right, right. It would be a great place for us to speak, I think, um, and, and introduce more people to the project. Yeah, more folks need to know about this. Well, for the Louisiana Anthology Podcast, I'm Bruce McGee. I'm Steve Payne. We certainly want to thank TR for joining us and, and really kind of giving us a heads up on Lafcadio Herm because we do have some of his stuff on our website. It's always good to learn new things about you know some authors that we always find out that we need to know more things about. Um, and I think, you know, particularly with one like Lafcadio O'Hearn, he, he wrote some pretty good fiction as well as did some journalism. So do do check out our our selections of his work on the website. But also, you know, do do uh, join us for next week because, again, this is uh, – TR is doing, uh, has done some very valuable research into these 19th century Louisiana writers that are mostly – I don't say mostly forgotten, but they've, they've at least kind of been put up onto the – or, you know, onto the back burner, so to speak when they do deserve more recognition. And so again, one thank thing to add about uh, Katie O'Hearn is uh, he didn't just do fiction. He was a reporter, and we have a right. collection of proverbs in Creole, uh, French Creole, that he collected and also translated. And it's on our website. It's super valuable uh, insight into the way people talk uh, in New Orleans, uh, you know, 130, 40 years ago. So, uh, he he left a big impact. He's an important Louisiana writer. Uh, he also was active in the Greek American community down there. I think the one in New Orleans is either the oldest in the country or one of the oldest, but it's an old old Greek community. Yeah, and he was and he was half Greek. I think mm -hmm. through his mother, but anyway, he was he was Greek or you know 
self-identified as Greek, at least you know some of his family, and so he was he was involved in that community. Yeah, I'm very very. So, you know, he, one of those people that you just haven't heard about that did a lot of stuff, like the whole opening up of a uh, window into Japan, um, yeah. which was kind of closed for centuries. Like they didn't really want outsiders. He, of course, uh, you know, adopted Japanese customs and language and all, and was able to be there long enough to kind of break through that shell. So he's a great, and that's frankly, did kind of the same thing when he got to New Orleans, right? Yeah, yeah. He didn't like outsiders, and he stayed around and learned the lingo and uh, published a lot of good stuff. And um, yeah, and we're glad he was here for the Louisiana Anthology Podcast. I'm and I'm Steve Payne, so again, thank you, TR, for, for joining us this week. Uh, we look forward to speaking with you again next week. We also want to thank all of you for listening in, and we hope that you'll join us for next week's edition of the Louisiana Anthology Podcast. Bye for now. <laughs>